You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. Because of the way I was raised, I cannot say this without qualifying it. Uh, I want to just be a normal human being and say, if you're hearing my voice now, you know, I recorded the show last week. I'm actually in London somewhere, running around London with Terry. Uh, I'm going to be in England for a few days recording a, a television program. But I can't just say that. I have to say this. I have to say, unless the plane we're on crashes before we get to London, I'm in London next week because you can't presume upon safe arrival because then God will hear you presuming upon your personal safety and crash your plane and kill everyone on it because he's a vindictive psychopath. Um, that's how I was raised. So barring a plane crash, I will be in London next week when you hear the sound of my voice running around the city with my husband, Terry, uh, and some friends uh, and doing this TV show while I'm over there. But I'm very excited about that. I can't talk about because it it's top secret. And here's the funny thing. I, I lived in London for a bit when I was a youngster. When I was in my 20s, Margaret Thatcher was prime minister. I was living in London when Section 28 was passed, which was an anti-gay law that was that was vicious. It inspired all sorts of famous British actors and, and public figures to come out and speak up, including Ian McKellen. Uh, and that was a, a dangerous and exciting time to be living in London. And I was a young person and I had sex when I was living in London with people who were – there also in London at the same time I was. That's how you had sex then because you couldn't have cyber sex because there was no cyber anything. So the internet didn't exist yet. You had to have sex in person with people you met in bars and clubs face to face or at work. And it's always a weird thing when you're an adult uh, to visit a place, to visit the old stomping grounds when you're all grown up. You know, the college town where you had a lot of furtive and weird and unsatisfying sort of stumble bummy sex when you were a youngster and trying to figure out what you wanted. Or then, you know, the big city, London, where you lived for a while when you were still feeling your way toward, you know, what it is that you wanted sexually and in a relationship. And it's always funny to walk around a city like that, like, like a London or the college town or your hometown and see a building go, oh, yeah. I had sex in that apartment. Like, oh yeah, this is the this is the tube stop where I got off that time when I was going to that guy's house and with that guy that I met at that place. And the, these memories come back to you. And, and a lot of those memories when you're in your you know, early twenties are unpleasant memories because you're not good at it yet. Because sex takes time and practice. And when you're young, you often go home with or have sex with people that you're not really into, but you just don't want to feel like a loser by not having sex or you're going home with somebody because that's the person that you have been taught to think that you want or that the kind of person you know your friends want. You want to make your friends jealous or you're looking at that person as a status object or something to brag about and you're not really just being honest with yourself sexually yet. And you shouldn't feel bad necessarily about those experiences, those awkward experiences because it is the very awkwardness of that kind of sex, of you know, fumbling and stumbling and not with the people you want to be with yet, not doing the things you really want to do. It is the very lousiness of that sex that often prompts you to stop playing games with yourself, to be honest with yourself. You know, you're having sex with somebody and you're just like, yeah, no, this isn't yeah, – uh, this isn't worth it. Remember, this is the 80s when I was doing this. So worth it meant not necessarily worth perhaps – being exposed to HIV or taking risks. 
And so when I walk around London, as I walk around London, as you hear my voice, barring a plane crash, uh, I will be spotting those places. I will be remembering those waiters. I will be remembering that guard from the Spanish embassy, people I had bad sex with, people who had bad sex with me. I was not good. They were not what I needed or wanted. I was not what they needed or wanted either. But those lousy experiences made me better at it. Those lousy experiences inspired me to be honest, to uh, stop sleeping with people that I wasn't attracted to because my friends were, because I had been taught that that was the kind of person I ought to be attracted to and to really start looking for and going for what I wanted and being honest about who I was. And so, young lovers, wherever you are, I just want to tell you that if you had a shitty sexual experience this weekend, if you got it on with somebody and you realized that it wasn't what you wanted, you realize you feel like it was lousy, you feel like you were lousy – don't be overwhelmed by shame or self-recrimination or regret. Just know, trust me, know that those lousy experiences are helping you to know yourself better and they will inspire you to go out there and get what you really want, who you really want. You will be a better lover in the end for those lousy train wreck early sexual experiences in your 20s. Trust me, I know and I'm going to be pointing out – some of the locations in London where I had those lousy sexual experiences early in my 20s to my husband, Terry, as we walk around London this week. And scene. Coming up on today's Savage Lovecast, John Shore, a Christian, born-again Christian blogger, author, activist, talking about his new project, the Not All Like That project, which was inspired by me. Uh, and my mouth and a project of my own. He's coming up. He's going to tell us all about that. And also coming up today, another installment of What Do You Got? A new segment on the show where we invite sex researchers and psychologists and scientists to come on and share the results of their newest studies into human sexuality. We'll be talking about, again, monogamy with a researcher today. That seems to be the topic de century that everyone's interested in. We got a gay guy on the show whose boyfriend wants him to use the dipstick method to check if he's clean for anal and we've got a call from a woman who needs help getting her boyfriend's 11-inch dick up her butt or not. Because, hey, haters, anal's just for homos, right? Let's get right to it. Hi, Dan. I am a 24-year-old straight woman, and I have been with my guy for almost two years now. I recently stumbled across some something I'm not too sure, like, uh, okay, so... I snooped, I did, um, in a public account, was really not really seeing or trying to find anything discrediting or anything like scandalous, but I did find something and I'm not too sure what to do with this anymore. It's not like I can unlearn or undiscover this information. The relationship that I have with my guy, totally GTG, uh, we're completely open with everything that we're both into, but this information is something he has never disclosed to me. Um, that is him cross-dressing. And I'm just, I'm a little baffled as far as like why he would, why he would not disclose that to me. I, I feel like we have a pretty awesome relationship, but I don't want this to be like the secret that he can never tell me. I'm not too sure how to approach him with finding out this information. I want to talk to him, but I feel like if he's kept this a secret from me, then he's 
too shameful to tell me. I, I would really love it if you could tell me how to approach this with the utmost and just utmost care and positivity. I don't, I don't want him to feel bad about his interests of cross-dressing or being into people who are cross-dressers. I would really love your help. Stumbled across. Saw right through that. I knew it was snooping and good on you for admitting a moment later that, okay, you snooped and you found this shit out. I'm a little confused though when you say that this information was in a public account. That mean he had personal ads out there for all the world to see and you recognized him that you found your way to not by just being out there in the world and stumbling across it but by going through some portal of his, by digging into that public account via his emails or some private storage bin of secret, shameful, cross-dressing digital information in the house. The problem is here that you, that you know what you know and it's hard not to know what you do know and when you find something out via snooping – you, can, you almost have to come clean. Usually it's ugly. Usually somebody, when they snoop, they find out they're being cheated on and you know they can't unknow that and then they have to admit that they snooped, which means you're doing this wrong thing but I did this wrong thing to find out your wrong thing. And as I've said before, snooping happens in all relationships. Snooping happens. And of course, cheating is the much greater sin. So if somebody catches you cheating because they snooped, you can't be all fucking Norma Ray self-righteous anger bomb about the fact that they snoop when you were cheating on them. The fact that you were cheating on them retroactively okays the snooping. Anyway, didn't mean to fall down that cheating snooping rabbit hole. We've fallen down that before. This though is, is a case where this is probably something that he is thinking about sharing with you that he would probably like to share with you but he's afraid of, of being rejected. There's a lot of – Guys out there who are cross-dressers, who are straight, you know, one of the big sort of bullshit cultural assumptions or mistakes or th that a lot of women make, particularly young women, is that if a guy is a cross-dresser, he must be gay. Uh, and that's not true. Gay men don't cross-dress. Gay men do drag. That's something different. Cross-dressing is actually a sign that a guy is robustly heterosexual. Um, so, But now that you know this, what do you say to him? Well, he probably wants to tell you. And so this might be a case where his relief at the fact that you know and you're into it or fine with it or supportive of it and want to celebrate it with him might retroactively okay the snooping. That perhaps when you tell him, you know, I, I did this terrible but very common, Dan Savage says, in the context of a relationship thing and, you know, poked around a little bit. Uh, you know, in your email and I found this site and I'm fine with it. Actually, I love this. In, in a way, it's great that I snoop because I really want to do this with you and have this be a part of our GGG thing. And hopefully whatever anger he feels that you're having spied on him will be wiped away at his relief that this is now out, that you know and that you're into it and that you support him and that you want him to live this and you want to share this part of his sexuality with him. If not, he'll dump your ass. And there's another option, courtesy of the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth, which is the deceitful little bag of shit option. And you've already done the deceitful little bag of shit thing by snooping in the first place, so why not? Which is you just go to him and say, I have this secret fantasy. You confess. Not that you're a cross-dresser, but that you've always wanted to get with a cross-dresser. And you just lay that out there like it's all your idea and then he's not cross-dressing for his own pervy satisfaction. He's doing this for you. And then years later, two, three years down the road, where you guys are really enjoying this, you can then can say, you know what? All these awesome experiences, it's because I snooped. Maybe you can confess two, three years out. So there are your options. Honesty, courtesy of me. Dishonesty, courtesy of the tech savvy at Risk Youth. 
Hello, Dan and tech-savvy at-risk youth. I'm a 31-year-old heteroflexible man who was engaged in a friends-with-benefits relationship with a woman who is 10 years my senior. Sexually speaking, we were completely compatible. She had the body type that I was into. She was older, which I'm into, and we were both GGG. We both admitted to one another that it was the best sex either of us had ever had. That being said, I knew from the onset that I did not want to develop a relationship with this woman, and I wanted to keep it an FWB relationship because for me, the relationship was sexually fulfilling but not emotionally fulfilling. And for brevity's sake, I'll leave it at that. I made sure to make my intentions known from the get-go so as not to lead her on. But after seven months, I ended things with her because she began to display girlfriend behavior, buying me gifts of alcohol, marijuana, and nights out on the town. All the things I enjoy but couldn't afford to provide for myself. But I took these to be the actions on her part of quote-unquote buying my affections in an attempt to persuade me that she really was girlfriend material. During our breakup, for lack of a better word, I cited these examples, and she claimed that I had gotten it wrong and that they were actually payments for the sexual services that I had provided for her. She wasn't trying to buy my love. Those were simply goods exchanged for services rendered. Needless to say, I ended things anyway because I wasn't truly convinced at the time. It's been seven months since we last saw each other, and she's reestablished contact with me in hopes of negotiating another friends with benefits slash sugar mama relationship. Her words, by the way. What should I do, Dan? Should I start things back up with this woman, or should I have learned my lesson and move on? I'm just thinking if a guy can be on so high a horse that the horse's asshole is bigger than the asshole sitting on the horse. Sorry, not calling you an asshole based on what little information I have. Uh, but God, just in this call and, and how you played this whole thing, you sound like kind of an asshole. So let's work on that. You sound kind of like an ingrate and also one of those people who's, I'm going to do the friends with benefit thing. But if at any moment you display any behaviors that indicate that you have any sort of feelings of affection for me, that violates the terms of friends with benefits because this is not a relationship – a friends with benefits relationship is a relationship. It is okay. It is actually good for people in a friends with benefits arrangement slash relationship to be decent to each other, to be kind to one another, to be a little bit thoughtful. You don't have to then marry that motherfucker and accepting their courtesies and kindnesses with gratitude and grace does not obligate you to then – Upgrade the relationship to marriage and kids or whatever else it is that you're afraid of. So when she, you know, maybe she's in a position in life where she has more sort of material wealth lying around and she likes you. She likes fucking you and she wanted to buy you one or two things because it gave her pleasure to do so. Why couldn't you just take the meal or take the pot or take the booze, thank the nice lady and fuck the shit out of her? That's what I would have done if the nice lady were a nice dude and I was your age and this sort of thing still happened in my life, which it doesn't. You're overthinking this. You are too on your guard against the dreadful prospect of a relationship or affection or designs on her part to tie you down. 
Chill the fuck out. You like her. You're attracted to her. You guys have some sort of rapport. She's in a position in life where she can indulge her boy toy a little bit and it may give her pleasure to do so. It might actually give her a little thrill to do so because there's an element of power there to being the one who pays for shit. And maybe that's what she's enjoying. Not that, oh, if I buy him enough weed and I buy him enough vodka, then he has to marry me. That's not going to happen. So chill the fuck out. If you want to be in an FWB thing with her, and that is a relationship, motherfucker. If you want to be in an FWB relationship with her, establish the terms, throw them on the table, and then be good to each other. And if one of the ways she's good to you because she can afford to be is by treating you now and then to whatever, let her. And then you find some ways to be good to her in return. Good to her in ways that you can in your current economic plight. And if the only way you're able to do that is with a hard dick, then fucking do that. And if you're worried about the karma or the karmic debt, you know, one day, 10, 15 years in the future, you might be in her shoes. You might be in an FWB relationship with somebody who's much younger than you are that hopefully is decent and everyone's being good to each other. And you have more material wealth at your disposal at that stage of life than – your younger partner does and you can pay it forward by being as indulgent of your younger partner and treating them to, to whatever in the same way that your FWB sugar mama treated you back in the day. But stop overthinking this because this is a very high horse you're on and it's not an attractive horse because all we can see when we look up at you on that horse is a great big asshole. And it's hard to tell from down here whether that's the horse's asshole we're looking at or you. Hello, Dan and the tech savvy at risk, not so much use anymore. I have a question for you regarding etiquette, and I'm pretty sure that Miss Manners doesn't cover this. I had a rather delightful one-night stand a couple of weeks back where we were not so safe. We didn't use a condom. We just kind of decided to go with the plan B method. Unfortunately, he was going. He was totally willing to pay for at least his half when we first interacted. However, I needed to get to my job and it didn't leave us enough time in the morning to go to the pharmacy together. Long story short, we ended up finding each other's phone numbers and he told me he was going to send some money my direction to cover his portion. We don't live in the same town. I thought that that was rather kind of him. However, I haven't heard from him since then. So here's my Miss Manners question. Should I text him and ask him, hey, dude, or is that $50 for plan B, or should I just leave it alone? I mean, I can handle spending the $50, but it would be nice if he you know, sent me at least $25 to acknowledge the fact that, hey, we don't have a child together. Very irresponsible, for sure. Usually I am. I'm just not quite sure if I should say anything. I kind of would like to. What do you think, Dan? You're annoyed because he didn't give you the 50 bucks that he promised you this one night stand uh, that you had unsafe, unprotected sex with, which was a stupid thing to do. And now I'm annoyed because you're calling me about this. This is kind of silly. If, if you would feel better to put it on him, to get it off your chest, call him and say, hey, you owe me 50 bucks. Don't forget. Clearly, he's already forgotten. Uh, then call him and say that. The likelihood that you will see that 50 bucks, considering that the guy doesn't live where you live and you guys don't sound like you're destined to 
be fucking each other again anytime soon are very slim. But at least then you'll have it off your chest. You will have asked for the money whether he coughs it up or not. Um, the other annoying thing is I don't know where you're buying your Plan B. But according to Planned Parenthood, uh, costs for Plan B vary from $30 to $65 for the morning after pill uh, depending on where you're purchasing it. So if you paid 100 bucks for it, if you were getting it on the street or wherever, you were overcharged. So next time you need Plan B and everyone should take Plan B in a hurry. The earlier you take Plan B, the more effective it is. Uh, blocks ovulation. So when there's semen present uh, and you have not ovulated, uh, it can prevent ovulation and therefore – the fertilization of an egg and prevent a pregnancy, da 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 da. So the earlier you take it, the better. But you might want to at least Google it. Call a couple places. And if you're paying 100 bucks for it, you're overpaying for it. And if you are too shy to call somebody, a one night stand who you are unlikely ever to see again and ask for the 50 bucks he promised you, I would think you'd be too shy to be having one night stands to begin with. Hi, Dan. My name is Kayla and I live in Indiana. I don't actually have a question. I was just calling in to tell you that I've been listening to your podcast and I really enjoy it. The reason I was calling in is that um, I'm actually a Christian and I was just going to let you know that sometimes it makes me a little sad when you say that Christians don't support gay marriage or or abortion because I think that's really an an old worldview and I think a lot of, of younger Christians are coming around and realizing that people are different and that doesn't mean that that they don't deserve to be loved and treated with respect. And so I was just calling in to let you know that I really support your cause and um, I think you're doing a great job. First, I want to thank you for your call and I want to thank you for listening. Um, and I do appreciate uh, your support and I, I do appreciate that you are obviously not hateful, not anti-gay, not anti-choice Christian. And the, the polling does show that a lot of young Christians, even young conservative evangelical Christians are for gay marriage or if not for gay marriage, they don't believe that fighting gay marriage should be the ultimate aim of all Christian churches everywhere. I get that sometimes it can make folks like you a little sad to hear folks like me get angry at folks like Tony Perkins who is the head of the Family Research Council or, or people from the American Family Association, all these large – Christian identified organizations, uh, the, these people like Tony Perkins and Pat Robertson and Brian Brown and Maggie Gallagher, uh, Peter Sprigg, uh, Brian Fisher, all these people are out there claiming that they speak – Peter LaBarbera, let's not leave him off, my old college roommate. They're all out there claiming they speak for all Christians. And so people like me will sometimes get pulled into public debates with people like them where it ends up sounding like – I'm buying into their bullshit that they speak for all Christians and I'm fighting them on this field. Uh, and I know, I know that not all Christians are anti-gay or anti-choice. My mother was a Christian and she was very pro-gay and she was very pro-choice. And I know you're out there. Uh, I have a word though. I have a term for, for calls like yours because I get them pretty frequently and I get emails from people pretty frequently. Uh, I call them not all like that calls or not all like that Christians. You are not all like that Christian. You're calling to let me know that you are not like Tony Perkins, uh, that not all Christians are like Tony Perkins. You're not all like that. I've written about this a lot in my column uh, and I've talked about it on the podcast before. Nalt Christians, N-A-L-T, not all like that, Nalt Christians are always calling and emailing people like me to tell us, to whisper to us that they're not all like that and it makes them sad when we act like we might believe that you're all like that. And my response has always been don't tell me. OK. Oh, you can tell me because I didn't want to make you sad. You can tell me. But you know what? You need to tell Tony Perkins too because he's the one out there creating this impression that all Christians are anti-gay bigots. 
the Tony Perkins, the American Family Associations, the Family Research Councils, One Million Moms, Concerned Women for America, People for Truth about Homosexuality, all these large multi-million dollar Christian identified organizations. They're the motherfuckers who are creating the impression that all Christians are like that, that all Christians are anti-gay bigots. And you nults out there who are always whispering, mewling to people like me how sad it makes you when we forget to qualify Christian with right-wing fundamentalist batshit, doesn't speak for all of them Christian. Call you to tell me that gives you a sad. OK. I hear you. I played your call. I, I want to validate your feelings. I didn't mean to give you a sad. Thank you for listening to the show. I really appreciate it. I know you're out there. But you know what? You need to make another phone call right now. You need to call – the Family Research Council. You need to email or tweet at Tony Perkins and get in his face and tell him it makes you sad when people like me seem to think that all Christians are hateful motherfucking bigots because that's what he's injecting into the public discourse. Tell him to. And you know what, uh, caller that I gave a sad? There is a way now. There is a place now where you can speak your piece. You don't have to whisper it to me anymore where you can – Join with other Christians who are not all like that and get in Tony Perkins' face. Not directly. You don't have to be a confrontational asshole about it. But you can just make a public statement and go on the record and that place is the Not All Like That Project, notalllikethat.org. Joining me by phone, the co-founder of notalllikethat.org, John Shore. I have called him America's preeminent non-douchey Christian. He is a blogger, johnshore.com. You've heard me recommend that site a million times uh, and an author of numerous books and he joins me by phone uh, from his cathedral in Las Vegas. Thank you for getting on the phone with us today, John. Thanks for having me today, Dan. So I'm looking at notalllikethat.org right now and I see my big fat face. Tell us about the project and why my big fat face is on it right now. Well, the project, you are there on the project because, of course, you are the founder if it gets better. And uh, the Nalt Christians Project is based on that model. It's a platform for uh, gay-affirming Christians to tell the world that they are both Christian and gay-affirming, and they are um, unqualified about that, and they do not understand the Bible as being in any way um, inherently anti-gay. The Bible does not say that gay people are an abomination to God, and the Bible does not say that gay people are going to hell and in fact, it is more biblical to grant LGBT people all rights that Christians grant all other straight people, and certainly all other straight Christians. It's more biblical to do that than so, less. So this isn't just Christians saying, we can put up with you, or we can tolerate this. Uh, this isn't Christians saying, we love the sinner, but we hate the sin. This is Christians saying... We have there is no issue with you biblically, religiously, morally at all, and we are speaking up. We are we are uniting and bringing our voices all together to say what to the Tony Perkinses of the world that not all Christians are like that. And you're exactly <laughs> and you're exactly right. It's an important line. Too many Christians spend too much uh, time on that fine line between welcoming and affirming. I'm not interested in welcoming, and neither are any of the Christians on the Not Christians website. We are interested in full-on affirmation, and that's an important distinction. We do not, we are not interested in that um, sort of Christian meme now. That is, well, you know, we uh, love the sinner; we just hate the sin. Mm -hmm. There is no sin in being gay. It's not inherently sinful to be gay. Give us your Christian bona fides. You are 
what? I am, uh, in, in the most technical sense possible, a born-again Christian. Mm-hmm. I was 38 years old and absolutely not Christian. And suddenly, in a moment and out of nowhere, I became a Christian. How did you avoid that? You know, most people who are born again Christians would also then pivot to rapidly anti-gay. It's almost the single shared defining characteristic of modern born again evangelical fundamentalist Christianity is that tenet. You can be Newt Gingrich and you can cheat and divorce and cheat and divorce and commit adultery, and your Christian conservative fundamentalists will vote for you. They will see you as one of their own if you're anti-gay, like Newt is. How did you? How did you manage to be a born-again Christian and not also then a bigot? Well, because up until um, the moment I became a Christian, I had always had gay friends in my life, real friends, always. And the idea that I would suddenly be filled with an understanding that Jesus was actually God incarnate who actually came to earth to actually help people understand that they are, um, you know, can be reconciled to God, can be peaceful in their lives, can live without burden of guilt and shame that, that every human being just sort of naturally carries around with them. The idea that that should somehow be translated or should have as an appendage to it, the idea that I'm supposed to turn my back on my friends or that I'm supposed to decide that my friends who are as moral and upright and decent as anyone I've ever known, that's why they're my friends. Um, that, the idea that being a Christian meant condemning gay people was such an, an uh, anathema to my conversion experience mm-hmm. that I immediately understood right away that there is just something wrong, I mean profoundly mistaken, uh, about, about that false teaching. And, that is, and it is a false teaching. And how do, then do you respond to fundamentalists and uh, born-again Christians who cite, as you've dubbed them, I believe, the clobber passages, Leviticus, Romans, Timothy, uh, the anti-gay shit that we're constantly hearing about uh, you know, on the 700 Club and out of Tony Perkins' mouth and One Million Moms. Sure. Uh, wh- how do you understand those clobber passages? How do you explain them? So to pick six or seven of brief passages in the Bible, out of the Bible's 31,173 passages. I know, right? God, blah, blah, blah. You can't shut that guy up once he gets on a roll. <laughs> well, that's right. And as he zips, but, you know, and as though, you know, to take those six or seven passages and dare to create a rule from out of them, to dare to shape those passing brief mentions of homosexuality in the Bible and fashion from those a club with which you go out and beat gay people, to turn those into a rule, to suggest that those passages suggest the whole of mm-hmm. the Bible. Those passages no more represent the Bible than a carnival uh, jellyfish, I mean a carnival goldfish in a baggie represents the ocean. Well, c- come on. Uh, you're putting me in a position where I'm going to have to argue the Pat Robertson p- position point. You know, a man should not lie with another man. If a man lies with another man, as he lie with a woman, they've both committed an abomination. They shall be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. Seems pretty unambiguous. Sure. So we can have that conversation. I mean, there are, what, six passages, essentially, in, in the Bible that reference homosexuality at all. Mm-hmm. Three of them are in the Old Testament. Leviticus, isn't that's the Old Testament. I, I am aware. Yeah, right? So Paul in the New Testament was extremely clear, I mean explicitly clear, repeatedly. He says it four times. 
Christians, part of following Jesus Christ is to mean we no longer follow the laws of the Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. Christians are under no obligation to um, adhere or obey or cleave to the laws of the Old Testament. If we were, then you know none of us would be able to, no Christian today would be able to wear mixed fabrics. You know that routine. You wouldn't yeah. be able to see the lawn with mixed grasses. If you're, if and a, if your daughter got raped and refused to marry her rapist, you would have to murder her. That's also... And if she was found out on her wedding day not to be a virgin, we would all have to stone her to death. We would be going to church on Saturday, not Sunday. Clearly, Christians do not anymore cleave, are, not, are actually not supposed to obey the rules that follow the tenets of the Old Testament, those kinds of law. But Paul also did say, though, that the effeminate shall not enter the kingdom of heaven, which is bad news for all the queens on RuPaul's Drag Race. Well, again, okay, so we're into the New Testament. So here's the, here's the thing about that. Things like that are small rules. They are, they're extracted from the, from the context of the Bible, and then they are put forward as if they're meant to represent the Bible. So, sure, let's assume that Paul did say what Paul is assumed to have said in the Bible relative to, to, to homosexuality. Mm-hmm. He didn't actually say those things. That's not what those words meant. There was no such thing as out people in Paul's time. So anything Paul said was necessarily had nothing to do, had no bearing whatsoever on how we should consider, say, LGBT people in marriages today. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're talking about a concept that simply wasn't there. It wasn't until 1972 that the American Psychiatric Association changed. Right, right but we're talking, right. About, we're talking about a document, the Bible, that your, you know, guys on your side would say was written by an omniscient, infallible God who should have seen out gay people and gay marriage coming, right? Even if Paul couldn't have conceived of it, even if there were no out gay people then, which is arguable, uh, wouldn't God have seen us coming eventually and... Well, it's, I mean, and, and, and the fact of the matter is, we don't have Jesus saying a single word about it. True. We have Paul talking about it, and we have Paul talking about it in a, in a societal context. If, if up until, in my lifetime, we don't have to wonder whether or not in Paul's day there was any conception whatsoever of a, of a whole population being born and created by God to be gay. We don't have to wonder whether or not that is or is not the case relative to Paul's time, because we see in our time it was true. In my father's time, 1972, up until 1972, you know, the American Psychiatric Association determined that everybody who engaged in homosexual sex, which is to say all gay people, were just straight people behaving abnormally. Homosexuality was considered a mental disorder in our own lifetimes. I, I want to get uh, back on track just a little bit because I, I worry that we're losing the people who listen to this show for the fist fucking and the bondage and the sounding <laughs> and the, the pee drinking. Um, you, you are troubled by those passages and you think when we understand them in context, the, the greater commandment is to love thy neighbor and blah, 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 and Jesus is love and gay people love and we're part of your understanding of the Bible. Now – Address this caller and her concerns about, we're not all like that. I have hurt Fifi's when I hear people like Dan get upset at people like Tony Perkins, and it implicates me somehow because I am also a Christian like Tony Perkins. What should her response be, and, and, and is the null site for her? Her response should be exactly what it was. Call you and tell you that not all Christians are like that. Call you and tell you that she supports your work call you and tell you that she is both a biblical Christian and she affirms 
that's what she should do. Good for her. She stood up. She did something about it. She picked up her phone and she let she did her best to let people know that not all Christians that that Christianity and anti-gay bigotry are not synonymous. Now she has something else to do. Now she can come to notalllikethat.org and tell the world through her YouTube video that she feels that way. And that's an important contribution to that conversation. The problem is that she's having, she doesn't have this problem anymore because she's overcome it, but the problem that so many Christians do have, and let's face it, most Christians, the truth is, most Christians are are discerning through this issue. We're not really, the Null Christians Project isn't really for Christians who already affirm. It's It's good for Christians who already affirm and don't want to come out and say so, because those folks need help coming out of their closet too. And it's not really for people on the right, the Tony Perkins and the Maggie Gallagher's and the Pat Robertson, those people profit on hectoring of gay people. We're not really talking to them. What we're really talking about, or what we're really meaning to talk to is Christians who are in the middle, Christians who are discerning, Christians who have been led to believe that they have to make a choice between their natural compassion and the Bible. What we want to let them know is those two things are not uh, there is no tension between those two things. God would not ask one of his people to have to make a choice between compassion and the Bible. That was the message of Jesus. What Jesus clearly demonstrated was how important it was for Christians to never, ever choose a law over compassion. What Christians say, what you were just you know, mouthing for them, not mouthing, but what you were just saying for them was, but look, it says this in the Bible. That means that's a law. That's a law. You have to follow that law. If you don't do that, you're not being Christian. Look what Jesus did. He healed the man at Bethesda, in the, at the well in Bethesda. He broke the law. He broke the commandment, thou shalt not work on the Sabbath day. He did that on the Sabbath day. And he did it because he was proving that it's more important to show compassion than it is to, uh, you know, than to obey a rule. That's Jesus demonstrating that right for us. He knew he was breaking the law. He knew he wasn't supposed to do exactly that kind of work. That was a Jewish, it was a custom built around a law. Essentially, it was a Jewish law that you're not supposed to extend uh, medical help in a non-emergency situation on Sunday. That qualifies as work. Why was Jesus so fucking opaque? Why couldn't he just fucking say? Why did he have to, like, have parables and we're supposed to infer from his actions? Why couldn't he just fucking say? Like... Ignore, ignore the old, ignore the old rules, and be good to each other, and uh, that shit in Leviticus about killing your daughters, and, uh, and people should own slaves. Like, why did Jesus have to be so fucking uh, opaque, dude? This is why I like talking to you because you ask the real questions. I'll tell you why. Because he's not going to let us off the hook. We have to make the moral choice for ourselves. I think the reason Jesus is so often so difficult to understand is because I think he's what the, you know, when you're God, you speak in a different kind of language than, than human beings. And I think what we But you know what, if, if you're God it, and you speak in a different language than human beings, then you can't get fucking upset as God when human beings don't know what the fuck you're trying to tell us. I think right? that's reasonable. I, I think what we get out of the Bible, I think the message, one of the great takeaway messages of the Bible, is that it is up to us to look into ourselves and find our moral center and align that with God. We have to trust that our innate sense of what's good and right and true aligns with God. Too bad that the Bible is so often fo- functions in people's lives more as a mirror mm-hmm. than it does anything else. We're talking on the day that notalllikethat.org launched um, last week. How's it going? How's it been received? 
Very well. We've been very pleased to be able to launch with, I think, 31, 32, 33 videos. We were, of course, pleased with that. We wanted to fill up the front page, have 20 videos showing the day we launched, and we, we sent the word out just to some close friends of ours, and they spread the word immediately, and boom, and how, we were able to show up large. And how's the media reacting? Very well so far. You know, everybody's into it. They get it. I think this is a platform that's been waiting to happen for a long time. And now that it's here, people are are embracing it, and they seem to feel really, really good about it. And now when people write me and say, oh, Dan, I saw you on MSNBC. I wanted to let you know we're not all like that. I can just say, great, you're not all like that. I know. Now you can go to notalllikethat.org and tell Tony Perkins, too. That's why we started the site. I was tired of watching you work so hard. (laughs) Well, I appreciate it. John Shore, America's preeminent non-douchey Christian. Check out his blog, johnshore.com, where you can also find his books. And check out his new project, which he's launched in partnership with Truth Wins Out, notalllikethat.org. It is the site for you, caller. Go there, go there, go there, and tell the world. Don't just tell me. Thank you very much for jumping on the phone today, John. Thank you, Dan. Hi, Dan. I'm a 31-year-old woman in New York. I'm a longtime listener, first-time caller, love the podcast. My question is about online dating. So I'm on OkCupid, and one of the profile questions is the six things I could never do without. Now, I've noticed that some guys list sex as one of those things. And I'm not a prude, but I find that to be a real turnoff. I mean, obviously, we all think about and need sex, but um, why put it up front like that? So my question is, why are these straight guys doing that? Are they clueless about how to interact with women? Or are they signaling that they really want to hook up? Are they trying to weed out women like me who are looking for a relationship and want to get to know someone and uh, just saying up front that they're looking for a booty call? People are on OkCupid because they're looking for sex partners, not squash partners. You know, if you went to a site where people were looking for squash partners, it might – be common. It might make sense. It might be routine for people to mention on a list of things that were important to them that squash was one of those things that was important to them that they wanted to have in their life. That's why they're here on OKSquashCupid.com looking for squash partners. Uh, For someone to put that out there that sex is important to them and it's one of the things that they want to have in their life and one of the things they want to have with you potentially, person scrutinizing their ad, doesn't make them some sort of perverted sex monster who's over-prioritizing sex or only interested in sex. If someone was only interested in sex, I guarantee you they would not be on OkCupid. OkCupid just isn't a site for people who are just looking to hook up generally. That's Craigslist and other places and sex workers' sites. Somebody who is on OkCupid is interested in sex and usually more than sex. But I don't think you should fault men for – Putting that on the list and putting that out there. And you know, not all guys are going to do that. So maybe if you want a guy who either isn't that focused on sex or is intuitive enough to realize that putting that on the list is going to turn off some women that he might want to date, women like you, just keep looking around until you find the guys who don't include it. But I don't think there's something wrong with putting that out there. I get too much mail. I get too many calls from people who are trapped in relationships that are making them miserable because they are sexually incompatible. Because the person they're with doesn't do it for them for whatever reason or they don't do it for the person that they're with. And the lack of sex in that relationship is destroying it and making both partners miserable and when there are children around, making the children miserable. So I don't think there's something wrong with the guys who are including sex on the list of things that they're looking for in a relationship. But they want that to be a part of it. They want that to be a slamming part of it. They're being honest and they're troubleshooting 
the relationship in a way. They're letting you know what they want and who they are and that sex is important to them. If that's not what you want, not who you are, sex isn't important to you, you will not have a successful relationship with that guy. So move the fuck along and be grateful that they put that out there so that you wouldn't waste your time on guys that you wouldn't have a good relationship with. But don't fault them for being honest and for wanting to avoid the pitfall that so many other people's relationships have fallen into because they had to pretend that sex wasn't important to them at the beginning of the relationship because acting like sex is important to you makes some people think that you're a depraved sex monster. Your attitude is actually helping to create these relationships that fall then apart because people have to act like they don't care about sex to find a relationship and then they're in a relationship with somebody where they then never can prioritize sex because they sold themselves falsely as not interested in sex or didn't, not someone who thought sex was important. Then their partners can turn around and say, you didn't say this when we first met. You didn't tell me when we first met that sex was really important to you. Well, these guys don't want to make that mistake. They're telling you before you meet that sex is important to them. Don't date them if that's a turnoff for you. But don't fault them for being honest. Hi, Dan. I'm a 27-year-old straight male who is currently attending a very popular and prestigious graduate acting program. About a year ago, a classmate and I kind of got together. We were seeing each other for a couple a couple months, and we've been on again, off again for about a year now. Things kind of exploded this summer, and I basically just said, I need some time. I don't think it would be good for us to see each other or speak to each other for the next month before school starts. In a couple of days, we're going to have to see each other again. And I have two questions. One, do you think it's childish of me to have said, let's not speak to each other and let's just do a little radio silence for a little while? And two, uh, what do you think the plan of action should be now? Um, I'm totally fine with us not being together. I actually strongly believe that we're not really right for each other. But the the sexual attraction is very big, and we are going to be working together in scenes and productions, and we're going to see each other all day, every day. So I was wondering if you had any advice to deal with this sort of thing. Actors and their feelings and blowing small things up into big things so you can feel like your feelings are big. Uh, Not a bad thing, but an actory trait. Uh, It's not a childish thing to take a break. It's not a childish thing to say, you know what, we just broke up. We should probably spend some time apart, let the wounds scab over and then we'll find a way maybe when we, we interact later to be friendly. Unfortunately, the question is being called early because you're in this acting program together and you have to interact. So what you do on that first day is you walk up to her and you say, hey, how are you doing? I'm glad you're well. Nice to see you. This is going to be a little awkward. Let's just acknowledge the awkwardness and then power through it and be – what is it you're wanting to be in acting school? Professionals. And do your scenes together and scene and walk away. Uh, and not spend a lot of time hanging out together. If the sexual attraction is so strong that it's going to pull you guys back into a relationship that isn't going to work, you now know. Spend as little time together outside of acting class as humanly possible. What you got? This is a semi-new, semi-regular segment of the Lovecast where we invite scientists and academics and psychologists who are doing research on human sexuality to come on the show 
and share something they've learned about humans and our sexualities. Human sexuality wasn't subject to in-depth scientific study until very recently, recently, scientifically speaking, and so there is still plenty for us to learn. This week's guest is Dr. Jeffrey Parsons, professor of psychology at Hunter College in New York. So, Dr. Parsons, what you got? Well, hi there. Um, so I'm primarily an HIV researcher by training. Most of my research is focused on HIV prevention, particularly among gay men. And several years ago, research came out to really suggest that the vast majority of new HIV infections are not being transmitted between casual partners or one-night stands or anonymous partners, but are really being transmitted in the context of a, a primary partner relationship. That is, from somebody who probably doesn't know that they've seroconverted, isn't aware of their status, who then gets into a boyfriend-partner-type relationship and transmits the virus to that partner. And it sort of made us sit back and look at our research that we had sort of become obsessed with conducting research on gay men and their casual sexual partners. And what had really gotten left out of the equation is the sort of basic human sexuality research around gay male couples mm -hmm. and the sexual behavior that couples engage in. And mm -hmm. so we really sort of took that as kind of an opportunity to further explore um, gay male sexual relationships with their main partners. And not surprisingly, we found a huge amount of variability. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we really started to zero in on was the whole notion of monogamy versus non-monogamy in gay male couples, which had been explored many years ago. And then I think because of HIV got sort of swept under the rug and nobody was really focusing on it. And we've now come back to really sort of trying to understand better um, what goes on in monogamous versus non-monogamous relationships and really addressing the fact that there's a variety of non-monogamous relationships, that not all sort of non-monogamy is the same. There's, there's a huge range of stuff, including this notion that we came up with called monogamish relationships. Wait, wait, wait. This notion you came up with of monogamish? Well, from an academic standpoint, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Excuse me, I coined that term monogamish. Yes, we were, we, were, we were a little frustrated when our first paper was actually in the peer review process using that term, and then suddenly I found out you, were, you had used that term. I was like, oh, dang, he beat us to it. Oh, so this is a great minds think alike moment where we both independently of each other came up with the term monogamish? Exactly. Hmm. I think we have slightly different definitions of it. Well, how do you define monogamish? Well, the way we, we initially defined it in our research was of a relationship in which the, the gay couple also has sex with other people, but they do that as a couple. So it was really about three-way relationships and group sex so that it's you and your partner having sex with other people, but you're both there when it's happening. Right. Which a lot of gay couples, you know, some research into gay couples where they, you know, try to find out the monogamous versus the non-monogamous. And then they dig into the monogamous identified couples and find out they're having three ways, but they consider that monogamy because that's something they do only together. Well, and that's a huge thing. And we, we definitely found that too, that, that a lot of men don't perceive that as violating any sort of aspect of monogamy. And you're right. A lot of them will indicate that they do that, but they'll just still describe or define their relationship 
as monogamous. Well, as I said to Stephen Colbert, if I'm committing adultery at one end of a guy and my husband is committing adultery at the other end of that same guy, is it adultery? Well, that is that is the question. <laughs> now, wait, quickly, tell us about the study and what the findings were. How was the study modeled and, and what were the, the ultimate findings here? Sure. So we started looking at individuals and then we actually collected a sample of coupled gay men. And we found that depending on the specific sample, about 15 to 20% were in this monogamous category, right? And we found that they were actually doing quite well as a couple. Um, mm-hmm. Sort of typical expectations are that, oh, if you're you know, having an open relationship of some kind, or if you're not just having sex with your primary partner, then that must be because there's something missing or something wrong with your relationship. And our research did not find that at all. In fact, <laughs> okay, wait, can I just jump in here for a second? My anecdotal data does not suggest that sexual exclusivity necessarily correlates strongly with happiness. Half, most of the calls are from people who are in sexually exclusive monogamous relationships who are miserable. Well, and see, one of the lovely things about scientific research is when it actually confirms what we sort of all kind of know and believed anyway. <laughs> And I think, I mean, I think one of the things that really struck us about the data were the ways in which negotiation and discussion about non-monogamy was happening. Because people don't really talk about that. In the heterosexual community, when you're non-monogamous, it's typically because you're cheating. Mm -hmm. And it's not necessarily discussed, negotiated, explicit rules set out. Certainly that's not true across the board. There are exceptions. But the majority of straight couples do not have these very sort of carefully negotiated non-monogamy arrangements. Mm -hmm. The majority of gay couples who are not fully monogamous do have these arrangements, and they get very clear in some of the rules, and they also sort of get um, into situations where sometimes they break those rules, and then sometimes they're not honest about having broken those rules with their partners. And that's where you then see the HIV infections creeping in. Certainly from a prevention standpoint, yeah, that's when we become concerned. Okay, so your study found that men in monogamous relationships actually had lower rates of depression, higher life satisfaction when compared to single gay men. But the, you know, the point of this research would seem to be how do we control for the fact that these non-monogamous or monogamous relationships are leaving more men at risk? Because if we know now that more guys are exposed in the context of a committed relationship than hooking up on Grindr or Jacked or Recon or whatever – if, if you're finding these guys are happier but at greater risk, what's the prescriptive here? What do we do about that? Well, we think it's really about taking the, the discussions and the negotiations about the type of arrangement that a couple's going to have into the beginning stages of the relationship. Our concern is that a lot of guys have this conversation after they've already started to be non-monogamous. Mm-hmm. And so clarity around the rules sort of what do we do if, you know, a rule gets broken? How does that, you know, affect our condom use with one another? Those kinds of things are not being discussed as early in the relationship as we would like. Um, One of the big sort of movements now is to do couples-based HIV counseling and testing, where the couple goes in together, they get their tests done together, they get their results together. And really sort of incorporating the opportunity there to talk to couples about, Okay, so you're monogamous right now, and, and that's, that's fine, but, but what if a time comes when you might not be? How would you start to talk about that? 
how might you start to set up sort of rules and agreements about that so that you can maintain both of you being safe in that situation? Uh, two quick questions before we let you go. Um, for the sticklers out there, how large was your sample size? How many gay couples are we talking about here? Um, we had about 160. Oh, that's a good sample size for a study like this. Mm-hmm. And uh, you published the results of the study uh, where and what's the title of the, the study if people who are so motivated want to look it up? Sure. We published a few papers. Um, the first one was in Archives of Sexual Behavior, and it's called Alternatives to Monogamy Among Gay Male Couples in a Community Survey, Implications for Mental Health and Sexual Risk. And that came out in 2013. And then we've also published in the Journal of Family Psychology, Non-Monogamy and Sexual Relationship Quality Among Same-Sex Couples. Dr. Jeffrey Parsons, Professor of Psychology at Hunter College in New York. That's what he's got. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone with us today, Dr. Parsons. Thank you. My pleasure. Hi. I'm a 30-year-old gay man in the South. My boyfriend is 22. He's fairly inexperienced compared to me. We've been dating for nearly a year. We're sexually compatible. We get along great. I'm a top. He's a bottom. Well, here's the issue. My boyfriend tells me he wishes anal play was more of a focus. In my mind, the reason we don't do it more is because he's always saying, oh, that's not happening tonight, or I'm not clean right now. But I feel like he expects me to say, I don't care if it's clean. I want you so bad. Let's do it. But I just can't do that. I'd probably throw up or dry heave if I pulled out a shake covered dick. Also, when I've inquired about cleanliness in the heat of the moment, he's suggested I do a dipstick test which I learned means sticking my finger in his ass and seeing if it comes out clean. I was pretty appalled that he would even suggest something like that. It was a pretty big turnoff. Well, I've had other boyfriends who've been proactive and have been as sparkling clean as possible. I understand accidents do happen. Um, am I being a bad boyfriend or a bad top for being so obsessed with being clean? I don't think it's too much for me to ask at the bottom, make sure he's ready to go. I would think he would want to be clean. Um, I'd love to know what you think about it. Are you still dating this 22-year-old dipstick? Uh, yeah, yeah, I am. <laughs> uh, listen, here's the here's the issue, I believe, with your 22-year-old boyfriend. He's very young. Absolutely. Reasonable age difference here. You know, I was 30 when I met Terry and he was 23, so I'm not uh, calling you a, a cradle robber or anything. Um, so this, this is a fine age difference. But you are the older, wiser, more experienced partner and you have to lay down the law. And he is young and he probably thinks, as so many young people do, has this hang-up that for the sex to be real or good or natural, it needs to sort of happen spontaneously. That means there's passion. That means there's love. You get swept away by the moment and then there's a dick in your ass. So anything you do like before sex to prep is an indication that the sex isn't – as spontaneous, loving, passionate as it otherwise could be because then you're just dirty sex havers who are making plans. And so sure. if, you know, if he you know, knows he has to go to the bathroom an hour before you guys are thinking about messing around and douche and wait so that all the liquid and everything else is out of him and he's clean and sparkly and ready to go, he may in his tiny little 22-year-old gay brain think that that makes the sex less wonderful, passionate, meaningful, loving – than if it just sort of breaks out all of a sudden, right? Yeah, I didn't really ever think about it like that, but you're probably right. So you need to breathe that yeah. out of him. <laughs> he wants more anal play, and here's how he's going to get it. He's going to be a, a grown-up gay man now, and he's going to know when he's good to go, and he's going to engineer good to go when he needs to, when he really wants it. He's going to take some responsibility yeah. for his ass and go douche it. That's basically what I told him uh, a couple days ago. I said, if this is really what you want, then these are the things that you are going to need to do, because otherwise I'm not willing to do it. And I've had other people, I've had, like, my last boyfriend was 31, 32, and 
he was old enough to realize that, you know, you have to, that's something you have to do. Right. Caveat here, though, is that not everybody needs to douche, that there are guys who know when they're clean and empty and good to go. And, you know, a butthole is not sort of a shit streaked monster until you douche it out. If you have good solid poops and they drop out of you and you're empty, uh, you are likely good to go. Accidents can happen. But a lot of guys need to, for their own sense of, cleanliness or security. They don't want to have to worry about it. They will douche. But asking your partner to feel around in your ass to see if there are any turds up there, that ain't okay. <laughs> I completely agree. And I, when I was, I'm like, am I just being really, for lack of a better term, anal for not wanting to do that? <laughs> <laughs> no, you are but not just... being anal. He is being infantile at that moment. Mommy, okay. check in my diaper and see if I'm clean. No, I'm not your mommy. I am your 30-year-old boyfriend. You are going to check in your diaper and see if you're clean. Exactly. And and I'm not asking for him to do necessarily. Just don't be disgusting. You know, like and, my only. And how many boyfriends has he had before you? And how long has he been um, out? Two. He's been, you know, it's funny. He has a gay brother and he's been out since he was like 13. Oh, wow. So he's really well adjusted that way. And um, like, but relatively, all, this, all my friends like him and, you know, he, we're a good match. But, but he's relatively inexperienced sexually. He's only had two boyfriends before you. Yeah, yeah. The last one he had for like two years, but sometimes it takes the boyfriend who establishes, uh, reinforces those community norms and expectations in a relationship to 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 wake a young person who's just newly sexually active up about their responsibilities, particularly for you know young gay kids, because they didn't cover anal douching in any sex ed that he had. They don't even cover that in what passes for gay sex ed in the places where that might actually happen. They're not going to go into anal douching. Nobody really wants to talk about poop and anal sex. Poop is anal's PR disaster. And even people who consider themselves sex positive, even some gay people, just try to avoid the subject entirely. Uh, They're certainly not going to have a productive conversation about how you tiptoe around the turts when you're going to be anally active. Gotcha. Well, I think that I think that does hit the nail on the head, though, about the whole spontaneous thing. And I guess I, I didn't even really think about that. So, thank yeah. you. Welcome to grown up sex. It just doesn't happen. It's not a thunderstorm in May. It just doesn't break out. You gotta prep. Absolutely. Good luck. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Bye. Hey, Dan. Uh, my boyfriend is extremely well endowed. He's eleven inches long when he's erect, and his girth is huge. And he's obsessed with anal sex. He's really generous in bed, and we've managed with lots of lube and lots of patience to get some of it in. But I think it's just physically impossible for it to get even halfway in. But he's totally obsessed with it. And um, I'm afraid he's going to start looking for a partner who can manage to get it in all the way. But... um, you know, I'm just wondering what you think about this kind of obsession, what it says about him psychologically, and I'm almost willing to break up with him so we can follow this dream, like this quest for the Holy Grail or the White Whale, but um, he could go his whole life never meeting someone who could accommodate this, you know, fantasy of his. So do you think it's possible for people to change their fantasies and their orientation you know, given that it's highly unlikely that it will ever happen, practically, physically impossible, you know, just try to find every creative solution that we can and um, just kind of coming up blank. It's really not possible for people to change their fantasies or their orientations. And there are people out there with fantasies 
uh, and orientations that are unrealizable, that can't happen in, in the physical world, in, in the natural world because the thing that they're into is impossible, doesn't exist. Uh, I, my, the, the, the example I constantly cite when we get into this subject is centaur fetishists. There are no centaurs in the world. There are people who are obsessed sexually with centaurs, who want to be with centaurs. It sucks to be them because they're never going to be able to realize their fantasies except through fantasy, except by playing with simulated centaurs, which are people in centaur costumes. Simulated anal sex is an option for your boyfriend. His dick may be too big. There are guys with dicks that are too big to be accommodated in most people's human buttholes. I dated one once a million years ago and yeah, that thing was – enormous and it was kind of a curse. It made him miserable. His dick was too big. A lot of people out there would think, you know, a dick can't be too big or a big huge dick is a nice problem to have but it can be impossible. He wanted to be a top. It was There were no guys who could sit on his dick. could use that dick to knock out drywall in the house when you're doing a remodel and that's about it because you're not going to knock out anything else. But you could simulate anal sex just like people simulate centaurs. Simulating anal sex is a doable thing. It's called the Princeton rub. It's called frittage. Basically, you put his dick between your legs along your taint. You close your thighs as tight as you can around his dick. You put lots of lube down there and then he basically fucks you between your legs and you cup your hands uh, in front so that you're – and you lube him up so that your hands become a part of that kind of little canal that you're creating for his dick that runs along your taint, uh, along the crack of your ass, through your thighs. And then up around a little bit to your front. Please do this when you're very sparkly clean so you don't introduce fecal matter uh, that might be drifting off your asshole into your vagina because that can create ugly consequences for you. You can basically create an external sort of simulated faux anal cavity for him and he can fuck you in the anal sex positions that everybody loves, somebody face down on the bed, even doggy style and just go to fucking town and live the dream simulated just like somebody getting it on with – Someone in a centaur costume is living the centaur dream simulated. As for what this obsession says about him psychologically, it says he's really into anal and he's got a big dick. And so that's kind of a frustration for him, a stone in his shoe, this unrealizable thing. Uh, it doesn't say that he's not sick. He's not wrong. Uh, he likes butt sex and he'd like to have it and because his dick is so big, it ain't on the menu. And so that sucks for him but – what is it? it doesn't say anything negative about him psychologically. He's into butt sex but he's got a cursed giant penis. And it made me sad when you said you were almost willing to break up with him so you could go out there and realize this. This guy you really like, GGG, you've got a really strong connection and you can conceive of dumping him, ending this relationship so he can realize this fantasy. And it didn't seem to occur to you that you could maybe someday give him a hall pass. Give him permission perhaps if he can find somebody or knows of somebody or has a friend whose dick is as big or bigger than his. Not that I would – he would necessarily know that about his friends who has a girlfriend or there's a sex worker out there that you feel good about or safe about um, who can accommodate someone like him. And there are people out there who can and do go to Xtube or any other porn site and you will see things as big or bigger than your boyfriend's penis slamming in and out of some folks' butts. Not every folk. Not every person can accommodate something that big. But those people are out there and it kind of as you know, a monogamish proponent makes me sad when I hear somebody who's in a wonderful, loving relationship with someone she digs who wants him to experience this but 
can only conceive of that happening in, in a circumstance where the relationship is ended. Instead of maybe someday if the stars and the planets all align and the opportunity presents itself, he could experience this with your blessing, perhaps in your presence and with your participation. Maybe you should wrap your head around that. Hey, Dan. My wife and I need your help. I'm 30 years old, married for seven years, and I have a child on the way. My ideas and my wife's ideas about sex when we got married were informed exclusively by the Catholic Church. We both waited for marriage to have sex with anyone. Our honeymoon was the first time for either of us. It was so awkward and bad. I couldn't stay erect. We ended up having sex a few times, but each time there was no orgasm for either of us. We were devastated. I felt like a weak little man, and my wife felt unattractive. Seven years later, and it's not much better. Two years ago, we both really wanted a child. It was one of the most difficult things for us as a couple. Years of bad sex, and I finally managed to orgasm when she was ovulating. I felt so mechanical. We are so jealous of people that have these amazing sex lives. We are both so angry, and we feel betrayed by what the church told us about sex, how they told us that we need to wait to have sex. They, felt they, they made it seem like sexual compatibility was just something that would happen. We feel lied to and we're both unhappy. I worry that we are at some very basic level completely sexually incompatible. I've been supplementing for our lack of sex. I masturbate and I watch porn on a regular basis. I've kept the secret from my wife because I think she'd think I was cheating. I have emotionally cheated on her as well. I was deeply involved with another woman at a previous job. I flirted with this other woman and went out to lunch with her. We talked about sex all the time. We went on dates. We were never physical, but she made me very happy. She gave me attention, and we flirted in ways my wife and I never did. I had to break up with her in the end because of the guilt I felt. Worse than that, I don't find my wife attractive sexually anymore. I remember when we first started dating, I really did find her attractive. But after years of just bad sex, and she she gained some weight, I just lacked passion and I had a hard time getting motivated to have sex. Sex is just awkward and frustrating. The idea of having sex with my wife makes me feel sad. I foresee failure on my part, and I lack and a lack of passion from both of us. I love my wife, and I want to stay married, and I feel like if we could fix our sex life, our marriage would be perfect. If we had better sex, I wouldn't be so tempted by the women. Maybe I wouldn't watch porn so much. Maybe I wouldn't masturbate so much. Maybe I would find her attractive again. Dan, what should I do? I'm desperate. <laughs> How do I, how do we, how do my wife and I fix this issue? Dear Dan, please, in an instant with a phone call, undo the damage done by 2,000 years of Catholic bullshit about marriage and family and sex. I don't think that that is within my powers. I was just listening to your call and holding my head in my hands, screaming, why did you guys get pregnant? Because the end is coming. This this relationship, if you guys can't negotiate a companionate marriage, if you can't put it on the table that clearly you guys love each other, you're making a baby together, you lifelong entanglement ensues from that child you've created together. Uh, but sex has never worked and your relationship is not defined by sex and so you guys should stop looking to it for sexual fulfillment because when you look to your relationship for sexual fulfillment, trying to find sexual fulfillment within your marriage, all it does is frustrate both of you because you are sexually incompatible. And if you'd had sex a few dozen times before marriage, you would have known that and known not to marry each other. Waiting until marriage, yes, blah, blah. The churches, the evangelical fundamentalists, they go on and on about it. But – and some people wait until marriage 
that wedding night and just gangbusters. They have that sexual connection. It's there. But you know what? They were lucky. Waiting doesn't create that kind of sexual connection. That sexual connection can in retrospect make waiting look like it was a good idea. I think more often the case is your experience where there was some sort of emotional compatibility. You guys kind of dug each other. You like each other. You're comfortable together. But there was never a sexual spark there. You waited and on your honeymoon, you discovered, yeah, there is no sexual spark there. And since you are in a sexually exclusive relationship that has this religion pudding dumped all over it, you're not allowed to seek sex outside this relationship because then you're a bad person and an adulterer. And you guys have created this kind of Rube Goldberg perpetual motion machine that only exists to make you both feel inadequate and miserable and frustrated. And what do you do? You get in a time machine and you don't get pregnant and you get a divorce and you say, sorry, that didn't work out. We're both young. Let's stay friends. Stay friendly and find other more suitable partners. But now you may have to give it a go because you're having a child together because your wife is pregnant because you managed to have one orgasm in her in the last seven years. Holy fucking shit. What were you thinking? My advice in advance of this baby being born is to get honest and get real with your wife and say there are a lot of people out there who have companionate marriages. They are married to their best friends. They don't have sex often or at all and they seek perhaps what sexual fulfillment they can find outside the relationship. I love you. I respect you. I look forward to co-parenting with you. I think we'll be good parents together and I think we'll be better parents together if we stop looking to each other to meet needs that we now know that neither of us is capable of meeting for each other because therein lies the frustration. Therein lies the anger and the disappointment that you keep looking to each other for what you know you will never get from each other and then you're angry at each other because you're not getting it from each other. You're never going to get it from each other. It's not there to get. You can't meet those needs for each other. So the choice is do you free each other from the expectation that you only may get your sexual needs met within this relationship and stay together as friends and parents and stay married and have a loving, companionate marriage or do you divorce now? Because you will divorce sooner or later. Eventually, the pressure is going to become so great that this explodes. Get out in front of that by getting real and really talking to your wife about what's really going on and what is never going to happen for you two and telling her you can't live like this. Not that you can't live married to her. You love her. You're trying to make a baby with her. You're going to have a family with her. You could do it. But you can't live without sex for the rest of your life. You need an open relationship. You need a monogamous relationship and so does she. This isn't just about you getting your needs met elsewhere. She probably has needs that she would like to get met elsewhere too. And there are other couples out there in your shoes who would like to stay married to the people that they had children with, the people that they love, the people that they married, people in companionate marriages, but need to have boyfriends or girlfriends on the side discreetly. Go find them. And maybe you guys can be happy together with other people playing a role in your marriage sexually that you guys are not able to play for each other. I'm very sorry. Hi, Dan. I was just listening to your most recent podcast, and you're talking about Trivada, and your argument was that people who are taking this drug could possibly become more reckless, but that's kind of the similar argument that social conservatives use about birth control and abortion, that women become more reckless if they have these things at hand. So perhaps just to reevaluate that argument. Hi, I'm calling about the woman who called in uh, about finding a unicorn at Burning Man. Well, I think Dan's points are mostly valid. I, th I think it kind of sounds like Dan doesn't get 
the thing about the dust at Burning Man because it's like this really nasty alkaline dust that um, they tell you if you keep on your skin for like more than a day, the alkaline base will start eating away at your skin. And I personally think it's an environment that's hostile to human life and probably the exchange of bodily fluids. So my suggestion would be to um, maybe if she finds somebody there that her and her partner do click with, she could maybe get their information and follow up and have sex at home with that burner because I personally would not want to have sex with burning men either. Hi, Dan. This is regarding podcast 355 about social versus physical disability. If you had met me 10 years ago, you probably would have called me socially disabled. I was like that for most of my life. Very strange, very awkward until things changed a number of years ago. I just started to tune into other people's behavior socially and kind of emulate that and relax and sort of fake it until I make it. And now I enjoy social situations and the 25 or 20 year old version of me would be shocked at the uh, successful, kind, caring, beautiful women who I have dated. And we're going to leave it there. Magnum subscribers. Thank you very much for subscribing to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. We do so much appreciate your support. 206-201-2720 is the number. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-201-2720. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. You can also follow John Shore of the Not All Like That Project at John Shore on Twitter. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.